Hi, real quickly, if you like Myths and Legends, we have Myths and Legends Plus on Apple Podcasts. Ad-free episodes, almost 100 bonus episodes, and more are all super easy to subscribe to right there in the Apple Podcasts app. For more information, check out the show notes. Thanks so much. Quick disclaimer, some stronger-than-usual violence in the first story this week. Check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week, on Myths and Legends, there are two stories from English folklore. On the first, we'll see how to get away with murder. The murder of the same guy over and over again. The second story is what happens when your mutton cash is low. It's time to go pretend to be Robin Hood in the forest. The creature this week is why you don't want to pet those otters at the zoo. They are stone-cold killers. This is Myths and Legends, episode 331, Bad Habits. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today, there are two stories from the Midlands, in England, about people with secrets. Some of those secrets are big ones, involving murder. Others are about trying to keep it quiet that your mutton and wine money is running low. We'll jump into a story about a monk in the city of Leicester in the 15th century, Dan Hugh. The monk who, well, is not really acting like a monk should. Come walk with me, my beauty. Dan the monk looked down at the young woman. He was close enough to smell her hair, which he made it clear he was doing with a big, indulgent sniff. Oh, no thanks, brother Dan, the young woman grimaced and looked away. I know some poetry. I'll talk some poetry at you. Women love poetry. He only knew two lines of poetry, and yes, it was about how a monk in Lester wanted to get with a handsome, witty wife. They say write what you know, and Brother Dan was not a creative man. The young woman didn't see a lot of good options. She was new in town, and the monk was a monk. He had cornered her close to an alleyway. There was no escape that way, and she didn't want him to follow her where she couldn't be seen. She couldn't cry out. She didn't need talk in town. Her only way forward was forward, pushing past him, though she could guess that was something he would rather prefer. She waited until a nearby shopkeeper glanced away at his stall, elbowed Dan Hugh in his gut, and took off in her run. She almost made it home. She and her husband had just moved to Leicester, so they were only able to find a house in the outskirts of the city. Now, no one was around. The monk hooked her waist and pulled her to face him. If the closeness of the monk when he wasn't sweaty and panting was unwelcome, this was positively repellent. After he caught his breath, he said, look, he was an honorable man, so he would pay her. She blinked, that wasn't exactly honorable, but she was listening. Also, she had no choice but to listen. He was still holding her there. He stuck his hand in the pouch at his side and emerged with two gold coins. Now, compared to the overflowing treasure chests and the treasure hordes of dragons we've talked about on this podcast, two gold coins is very nearly nothing. But to a monk in medieval Britain, and 
especially to the young woman, the spouse of the tailor, that was an enormous amount of money. And he was offering her half. She looked from side to side to the nearly vacant road at this hour. Okay, Dan nearly fainted. Okay, okay, yeah, that was fantastic. Now? Could they go now? Tomorrow, the young woman said. Her husband would be home soon for lunch, and she wanted them to have all the time they needed. The monk nodded, yes, so much time, okay, so... So tomorrow, she said. Her husband left a little after dawn. He was traveling all day. If the monk arrived an hour or so later, they could be together. The monk was in shock. He said he thought about this so much, he was so excited. The young woman grimaced, then remembered the gold. She smiled. Well, soon his fantasies would be a reality. She looked around quickly, gave him a peck on the cheek, and backed away. A farmer crested a hill behind them, taking his wagon to market. Dan became very formal. Pleased to meet your acquaintance, strange honorable woman whom I'm just meeting now. Good day to you, the monk said and scurried away. The young woman waited for him to leave and breathed. She arrived home and, true to her word, her husband wasn't far off. He opened the door and found her just sitting there at the table. She looked up. So, how did he feel about robbing a monk? Wait, is he dead? The young woman sat up and looked at the monk, who was lying face down on the floor after several helpings of blunt force trauma. It had all gone according to plan, until it didn't. The monk arrived, made his move, and the tailor hiding in the next room emerged. They talked about a weapon, but it was only to menace the monk into giving up both coins. The young woman looked at the wooden stick with the iron ball with uh, spikes? A cudgel? Where did he get a cudgel? Egbert let me borrow it. He got it from his great uncle. He was in the Crusades. I guess I got a little carried away, the tailor said. Oh, you think? The young woman paced the room before checking Dan Hugh again. Nope, yeah, he's he's dead. This is bad. This is really bad. They were relying on his shame to keep quiet, but him being dead completely flipped the narrative. They would hang if he was found here. The young woman shot her head out the door. Good. No one had heard him. No one was on the street. He arrived through the back door. A plus side of an illicit secret affair was that the monk probably didn't tell anyone where he was going. No one knew he was there. Okay. Her husband needed to go to work as usual. Come back, and then he would help her take the body out after dark. It was a long day for both of them. The young woman had to stay home and run interference for anyone who might try to come to the door or look in their house. The whole day, the tailor sat at his station, knowing, just knowing, that the guards were going to come for him. But they didn't. When he arrived home after dark, he found his young wife standing next to the body that was stiff as a board. She had already dressed him in his traveling cloak. It was easy enough. They would take him back to Lester Abbey and prop him up against the wall. For all anyone knew, he died of a heart attack in the street. They slipped the gold from his purse and, when the town had settled down, they snaked their way through the alleys and in shadows until they made it to the outer wall of the abbey. They propped him up unseen and slipped away. They didn't breathe until they were back home. 
but they had done it. They wouldn't hang. Dan Hugh! Where is Dan Hugh? The cry echoed out from the warming house. Technically, it was one of the few places one could speak in the abbey. But if you yelled loud enough, as the abbot found, it was something of a loophole. Novice! Novice, get out here! A novice came running from prayers and bowed before the abbot. We're going to find Dan Hugh. Grab your cloak. Hey, you, Hugh! The abbot barked when, not ten minutes later, he and the novice found Dan Hugh leaning against the wall. It should come as no surprise that Dan Hugh did not respond. Hugh, this is your abbot. Speak. Justify why you missed an entire day of prayers and work. The abbot strode closer. The abbot shook his head. There was no justification. Now Hugh was out here, probably drunk again. The abbot took his robe and tossed it in the hands of the novice. He rolled up his sleeves. I don't enjoy this part of the job, is what the abbot said. But his grin and how efficiently he went about the business of punching Dan Hugh in the head until he fell over kind of made the novice think otherwise. All right, get him up, the abbot said to the novice. Brother Dan had one too many and fell onto my fists. Ha, but really don't speak of this to anyone. The abbot looked down to the novice, hovering over Brother Dan. He looked to the abbot, then back to Dan. You, he's dead. You killed him. The abbot's eyes widened. Oh no, 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 no. The earl told me if this ever happened again, the abbot trailed off. The novice froed his brow. Wait, again? He can't be found here, outside the abbey. Drag him by his feet. We'll take him to my private quarters. You have two fireplaces? The novice spat when they made it to the abbot's private quarters. The rest of the abbey only has one fireplace, and it's only lit from November to March, and you have two? The abbot offered the novice wine from a silver goblet. You all only have one fireplace in the warming house, because it's part of your religious training. It keeps you from relying on the comforts of this world. I'm the abbot, though, and I've already perfected myself. Anyway, how are we going to get rid of this body? He can't be found here. We can't have another scandal. The abbot could see this line of thought made the novice uncomfortable. He said that as a potential brother here, and he wanted to be a brother here, right? It was his duty to obey the abbot completely. There were things about this world that the novice wouldn't understand because it's not up to us to know every step of God's plan. Also, once again, I'm the abbot and you have to listen to me. It's literally your job. How do we get rid of this body? No bad ideas. Just throw anything out there. The novice set down his goblet. He had only been at this six months, but living among the monks had really forced him to reevaluate how he saw life in the church. For instance, Dan Hugh, who now lay dead at the other side of the room after the novice dragged him inside, he had been one of the worst. It was a bit of an open secret, but he was constantly harassing women in town. Just last week, he had been obsessed with the tailor's wife, and the novice said that he had an idea, but he held out a hand. Looking around the lavishly appointed room, it was going to cost the abbot. The abbot pressed a few coins into his hand, and the novice nodded. Honey, the tailor said an hour later when, 
Investigating a noise he heard outside, he found that Dan Hugh had returned. What are they going to do with that Dan Hugh? We'll see if the two can come through, make do, and subdue this bugaboo, but that will be right after this. Slash Myths. The tailor couldn't sleep. Between cleaning up the cudgel, which he chastised his friend was really more of a mace and should come with a warning, and, oh yeah, killing a guy and getting rid of the body, the tailor wasn't feeling sleep. He didn't see the abbot and the novice, but he did see Dan Hugh, again, staring down at him with his cloudy, dead eyes. Get him inside, the young woman said, and they pulled him in. How is he back? The husband cried. Are we cursed? Oh my gosh, we're cursed. He's like a drogger or something from the stories of the Danes. The young woman told him they would be cursed if he kept on like that. He wasn't a drogger. She didn't know why he was back here, but it was likely that someone had found the body and was trying to pin the murder on them, the murder that they had actually committed. Brother Dan wasn't exactly subtle in his intentions. Still, they were right back where they were this morning. They needed to get rid of him. Again, and propping him up against the abbey wouldn't do. They would make this easy. Put the body in a sack, put the sack in the river, done and done. And whoever dropped him off couldn't accuse them without implicating himself. So, for the second time that day, the couple flexed and moved the legs of Dan the monk. This time, they weren't putting him in a cool, chill, leaning position on a wall, but something close to the fetal position, so they could fit him in a sack. When that was done, the tailor dragged the body once again toward the town of Leicester. And he almost made it to the river. Despite the river sore, winding miles north and south of the city, the tailor went directly to the center of Leicester. I mean, I get being scared of criminals and whatnot and avoiding the wilderness, but when you're on your second trip to dispose of a body on the same night, congrats, you're the criminal. The tailor decided that when it came to getting rid of the bag in the river, Leaving it on the road next to the miller's place was apparently good enough when the dogs began to bark and the door to the mill flew open. The tailor ran off into the night. If he would have waited around for about 10 more seconds, he would have seen a man, Sammy the thief, dragging a sack almost as big as his own. He was bringing home the bacon. Like, he was literally bringing home bacon. He had a giant sack full of bacon because his wife loved bacon. Unfortunately, bacon was expensive. So he went out at night and stole bacon from the miller. It was a victimless crime, if you don't count the victims. And Sammy didn't give the victim, the miller, much thought until his dogs started barking and the candle upstairs sparked to life. The miller had been ready, probably on account of all the bacon theft. Sammy was overly ambitious this time, too, and he wouldn't be able to get away with the bacon in tow. He was in trouble. He ditched the sack on the side of the road and dove into a bush. Someone was watching out for him. Sammy wouldn't go so far as to say God because he was robbing his neighbor, but a wind kicked up when the miller opened his door and it blew his candle out. Sammy could hear him swearing and stopping back up off to bed. By the time he felt safe, the moon was behind the clouds, and the street was black, 
Sammy felt around for the bag in the street, found it a bit heavier than he remembered, and dragged it home. Fire up that hob, Sammy said when he burst through the door of his home. It's bacon time. Oh, that's a body. Sammy recoiled when he opened the bag. No surprise, he picked up the wrong bag in the street. He squinted. Did did the Miller kill brother Dan Hugh? Oh, Sammy's wife said. Sammy said, what? She said, no one deserves to be murdered, but brother Dan? Yeah. Everyone knew about Brother Dan. I, I didn't know about Brother Dan, Sammy cocked his head. Everyone who needed to watch out for Brother Dan knew about Brother Dan, the woman said. Looks like someone responded to his many, many unwelcome advances. Should we, like, report this? Sammy crossed his arms and stepped back. And basically confess to the theft? No, just... Go hang the bag back up where you found it. So, Sammy did. He broke back into the miller's place, found the hook, and hung the bag. The dogs had been tied up out back after the false alarm earlier that night, and when Sammy was slipping out the second time, he tripped over the actual bag of bacon, right where he dropped it in the street. He confirmed that it was sliced pig and not folded human, and took it home for some midnight snack bacon. The best type of bacon. Um, so there's a dead monk hanging in our storeroom. He's stuffed in the bacon bag, the miller's wife said, returning. It was just before dawn. Did you kill Dan Hugh? The miller said, no, wait, brother Dan was dead? You should know. He's in your sack in the storeroom. The miller shot up and ran to the storeroom. And this wasn't you, the miller's wife walked in the storeroom while the miller was pacing. No, it wasn't me. Wait, you're like surprisingly calm. You've never talked to Brother Dan, I take it. The miller shook his head. Well, whoever killed him, we can't have him here. The miller resumed his pacing. The wife nodded. Yeah, obviously. They needed to find a way to get rid of the body. Then the miller's wife's face lit up. She knew just the way to send Dan Hugh back home. Just let it go, the miller whispered. Just let her go. She'll run right home. The miller's wife stroked the horse's nose. They had caught her from the field next to the abbey, just before dawn. She was the abbot's personal mare. And she knew her way home. As for Dan Hugh, well, they couldn't straighten him back out completely, but they didn't need to. They were able to set him atop the abbot's horse, with an old shield looped around one arm and a lance tucked under the other. They balanced him in the stirrups and let the horse go. She started the ride back home. The miller ran to the bushes outside the abbey gate. The abbot was out walking, as they knew he would be at this hour, and they saw him squint. Then, the horror grow on his face as he came to the realization that Dan Hugh, brother Dan, the man he murdered the night before, was riding for him. Weapon out. He shrieked and pounded on the door. Dan Hugh, Dan Hugh had returned. He was a revenant. 
The brothers answered, but the abbot commanded them. The abbey was under attack. They needed to do whatever it took to protect the abbot. I mean the abbey. Not me, but also me. And they did. The Miller couple watched as a dozen monks ran out, brooms and hoes and candlesticks in hand, to attack Dan Hugh, back from the grave. For fighting a man who was already dead, they sustained quite a few injuries. But they got him. Again. There were a good many questions after that. Mainly that they all remembered hearing the abbot yelling his name last night. And then the next time anyone saw Dan was him riding up. Dead. The abbot, though, deflected. Simply clasping his hands and saying, Well, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Adding, or, or something. Heavy on the or something, the novice mumbled. Who said that? The abbot pointed. In the end, Dan Hugh was buried with all the honor befitting a monk of his station, at the abbot's orders. And, his third time being killed in under 24 hours, this time, he stayed dead. something of a trope in folklore, with people accidentally killing someone and then trying to pass off the body to someone else who thinks they killed that person and doing the same. It's probably most famously in the story of the Hunchback from 1001 Nights. Unlike the character in that story, who just passed out from having too much fish jammed in his mouth, as you do, there was no ambiguity as to what happened to Dan Hugh. In the end, it was kind of a fun story, despite people repeatedly murdering a corpse. We'll jump into our next story about a rich man behaving exactly the way you think he would, but that will, once again, be right after this. Money fight! Humphrey yelled out to the guy who managed his books. He opened up the cash drawer. The drawer he scooped cash out to throw at people. We all have them. He used this as a way to end meetings with people when he was bored. He saw it as a fun way to let them know he was finished. They saw it as him pelting them with small bits of metal. But Humphrey Kiniston only came away with a few shillings. What the? That's what I've been saying. You're out of money. Sir Adam, his advisor, shook his head. Humphrey stood up and ran to his second cash drawer. Only a few pence. His next one, spiders, ew. His final secret cash drawer only had a reminder to refill that and the other cash drawers. Love, Humphrey. Aw, how could I not love Humphrey? Humphrey smiled, then crumpled the note. He couldn't believe it. Out of money. When his dear departed father departed dearly, Humphrey made one goal. To spend all of his cash, all of it, down to the last penny. There had been so much of it, it was an impossible goal. Well, congratulations, I guess. You, you did it. The advisor threw up his hands. Adam. I need that money. I've grown accustomed to the finer things in life. Puddings, wine, mutton every night, bro. I can't go back to ale and porridge. You have to help me. Sir Adam said he couldn't, but he knew someone who could. Humphrey's mother. Humphrey crossed his arms. What did she know? If he was broke, she was in the same boat. They were both living off the same inheritance. While she actually kept her finances separate from yours, she's still obscenely rich. The advisor wrung his hands. Mummy! 
Humphrey called out, running to hug his mommy when he made it to her manor. She extracted herself from that situation and said, So, the day finally came. Who all knew? Humphrey pointed to himself and the advisor. Only him and Adam. The mother said, good, it would stay that way. She had news. Humphrey was getting married. Humphrey shook his head. Uh, no, not this again. He was a wild stallion like his horse, Beelzebub. That was his name. Yeah, well, you'll have as much money as a stallion if you don't marry her. She comes with a massive dowry. It won't be like it was before, but you can still keep the house, servants, all your stuff. All you have to do is be a family man. Isabella's family was floored by the match. Despite being fairly rich, money can't buy titles. Well, I should rephrase that. Money absolutely can and did buy titles in the medieval world. But Isabella's families hadn't. They were stunned by the magnificent ceremony, all bought on credit, and Humphrey had assurances from Sir Adam and his mother that all would be well. He only had to change everything about himself immediately and never succumb to the temptation to drink, gamble, and carouse ever again. Humphrey was a good husband for about as long as it took the ink to dry on the anachronistic check. Being the time it was, he had complete control and nearly immediately liquidated her dowry, turning it, well, into wine. When that began to get low, he poured out libations to her father, pleading him to join them. The man, who had grown up the son of a farmer and wrenched everything he had from life with the work of his hands, was now being invited to parties with barons and knights. He was more than happy to pay his own way. And then some. When it comes to Isabella, though, well, part of growing up is understanding that the world is not what you think it should be. Isabella, who had seen her parents' happy marriage and thought that the nobility were like the old stories, bore her devastation quietly. Quietly, because shut up in Middle Castle, her mother at home and her father out for weeks at a time with her husband, she had no one to tell. Sir Adam, what's the good news? Sir Adam bit his lip. Well, it looked like all Humphrey Kiniston's money problems were about to be at an end. Turns out, Humphrey, changing absolutely nothing about himself, his behavior, or his habits, meant that he was quickly back in the same situation. And he couldn't just marry his way out of this one. That was a one-time use escape hatch. So, my friends have come through for me, Humphrey clapped. He was more aware of his cash flow issues this time, so he had approached his friends early and often. The friends that it had cost him a literal fortune to entertain. The ones Humphrey himself had helped out in their own respective times of need. He breathed. Whew, good. When can they expect the cash? Um, never? Sir Adam answered, wincing. Turned out all Lord Kiniston's friends were more into the taking money and not giving money part of the transaction, they said when they slammed the door in Sir Adam's face. What was all that about money problems being at an end? Humphrey said. Adam glanced out the window. Well, there was a good bit of lead up, but he was about to say that the king's man, the bailiff, had come to seize the castle and estate to pay Humphrey's debts. Sir Adam said it looked like, with surrendering the castle and the ancestral lands, Humphrey should be able to avoid a prison sentence. Probably, there were boots in the hall. The bailiff had arrived. 
Humphrey's shoulders slumped. Okay, he waved to Sir Adam. Go and let them in. Adam did just that, and greeted the bailiff and his men. Lord Kiniston will see you now, Sir Adam said. The, well, where is he? The bailiff and the others said, after looking around the room. Adam turned to see an open window. Curtains fluttering in the wind. Humphrey Kiniston was a laughing, shrinking dot on the horizon, riding his favorite hunting horse, Beelzebub, as fast as he could to the forest. Isabella wept, not for the life that was being ripped from her, but for the life that should have been. Her father had taken the same path as her husband, but only a few weeks early. He, too, had fled. He was in Ireland or on the continent, somewhere his debtors would never find him. She had just come back from burying her mother, who, after her father's effective abandonment, had fallen ill. She had never recovered. She came home to men tearing her house apart, cataloging everything, and telling her that she had nothing. She gripped the bag that she carried him with her and walked off, destitute on the road, alone. Humphrey sneered as he tossed the rocks out of the cave at Nescliffe clearing a spot in the interior, the nerve, the nerve of his so-called friends to hold back in his time of need. It wasn't like they were saints, they were landlords, and they squeezed their tenants. Then Humphrey thought about it. Landlords. He smiled. He had an idea. He had spent years at the tables with his friends, out riding, hunting, He knew everything. He knew their schedules, their hired hands, which days they collected their rent, and most importantly, who did the collecting. He hit three stewards on the first day. They were all confused why their master's friend, Lord Kiniston, was meeting them way out on the moors. Things simultaneously became way more confusing and also simple when Kiniston brandished his family sword, one of the few things he had grabbed from his estate before he fled, and held it to the steward, demanding the rents the steward was transporting. The steward didn't know why this was happening, but it was happening, and no matter how much their master paid, which wasn't much, the money was not worth their life. After each robbery, Humphrey Kiniston whistled for his horse, Beelzebub, and rode off into the fog. He didn't even take it back to the cave. It was more of a revenge thing than a get-rich thing. He just wanted to make them hurt and he would hit a few more stewards over the next couple days before leaving the country. As he rode into town, though, and especially as he entered the first residence, he was struck by how hard things were here. The roofs were as full of holes as the clothing, the children and parents ragged. He didn't know what else to say other than money. They swarmed him, their tears of joy outstripped only by their praise took their hugs, and left stunned. After the next two, when he returned their rents to them, and they made it very clear that they would actually be able to choose both warmth and food this month, he was starting to get the impression that the rich landlords, who did nothing but party with the money of the people, they might be the bad guys. 
How does Beelzebub like his shoes? The blacksmith called out five years later. Humphrey climbed the stairs with his horse, stabling him in the cave, and thanked the blacksmith for shoeing his horse with two pairs, the lower pair going backwards, so no one could quite follow him. He was just in town on his normal duty, returning rents from those who had once been his friends. Surprisingly, life in the cave didn't seem to bug him all that much. The worst thing in the world had happened to him, what he had considered the worst thing. He lost all of his family's money, and he survived. In fact, it made him like so many others. But out here, people had it far worse. They were being squeezed. Squeezed by the people Humphrey had once called friends. Squeezed by the type of person he had once been. Sure, who didn't love mutton every day? But could he really justify mutton when people less than a mile away couldn't even afford oats for themselves and their children? The robberies had started as a revenge thing, but they quickly grew to be more than that. He saw how much the people the landlords squeezed needed the money, and he knew how little the landlords actually needed it themselves. There were exceptions, of course. One landlord actually arrived at Nesclift. He found himself staring down spears and looking up at clubs of all Humphrey's new defenders. But we'll get to them. The landlord arrived, hat in hand, to plead for his rents back. He claimed that he never took more than he needed to survive himself, and after Humphrey interviewed each one of his tenants, he determined that the landlord was telling the truth. Of course, he had already given the money away, so Humphrey just sent the next robbery, from a man he knew to be unscrupulous, directly to the honest landlord. It wasn't security, but loyalty, that helped Humphrey get away with it for so long. He had never hidden his name. In the early days, he had wanted his friends to know it was him. He was already wanted by his debtors and had planned to leave the country anyway. And when his mission grew, nothing changed. He stayed in his cave in Nescliff. He ended up carving a doorway and, like Robin Hood, attracted a band of followers. The blacksmith, a tanner, a tailor, and others made a makeshift village in the woods. We don't know exactly how many, but when the landlords assembled their own group of paid goons to go put a stop to Humphrey for good, pulling their still vast resources to the tune of over 100 guys, they found themselves in physical danger if they even got close to the cave. The money of the landlords was nothing next to the near fanatical loyalty Humphrey had engendered with his kindness. That was part of why he was so successful. The people that he robbed, the stewards, had been hired from among the people Humphrey was helping. The legends of legions of men Humphrey had at his command grew, when really it was maybe a half dozen who never drew their weapons. And things would have gone on a lot longer, too. The smart landlords adjusted their prices and started being more fair to their tenants. But there was still enough greed to warrant Humphrey. That being said, it would be his kindness that did him in. An elderly woman was sick. She had no family remaining, and everyone was wary. So it was Humphrey that helped her through the worst of her fever when no one else would. It was less than a week later that he came down with symptoms himself. He had kept up with his nightly rides, and living in a dank cave during a British winter made his symptoms worse than even the elderly widows. Despite all the people who came around him to bring him warmth and food, his condition deteriorated. Soon, he was nearly beyond hope. The people looked to one another. It was time to call the witch. She wasn't really a witch, but probably. 
She was an independent, educated woman who lived a life of her own and had knowledge people didn't seem to understand. So really, we're kind of splitting hairs here as far as early modern England was concerned. Still, it was the early 1500s, and witch hunts were still somewhat uncommon. We're still a hundred or so years out from scoundrel subject Matthew Hopkins, the witchfinder general, so the witch of our story, as long as she was able to know which way the wind was blowing, could stay one step ahead of anyone violently opposed of what they thought she was. As far as witches go, she didn't have the wart on her nose or green skin. She was a woman who was slightly younger than Humphrey, whose gray hair had once been dark. She told the villagers to leave them and went to work boiling water and crushing herbs. Humphrey blinked awake. His breathing was labored. He was sweating despite his chills. He gripped the woman's wrist. He had to make his confessions. He knew that he was dying soon. She said she wasn't a priest, but he kept going. He had lived his life. He had lived in gluttony and avarice and lust and greed. He had hurt so many in his thoughtless pursuit of pleasure. He had tried to make it up to the common person, but he had one great regret. Isabella. He married her for her wealth, corrupted her father, and when the money was used up, cast her aside. She died years ago. She wandered off in a stupor and no one knew what became of her. The witch was quiet for a while, then spoke up. I'll tell you about my husband, the witch said, as she prepared the medicine. She said she had been young once, beautiful, naive. She had believed the old stories, the fairy tales. She thought the man she married would be like a prince, that she would go live in a castle, and that they would spend each day reading poetry to each other and looking longingly into each other's eyes. That was not what happened. Her husband was a pig. He used her. He used her family's money. His attitude toward her was worse than scorn. It was indifference. Then, when they were all used up, he cast them aside. Her father fled, her mother died of a broken heart, and she, well, she took to what she knew. She carved a life of her own and traveled from place to place, healing people the way she wished someone had been there to heal her mother. People called her a witch, but that kept the highwaymen away. Isabella? Humphrey mustered his strength to sit up. Is that you? The witch laughed. No, sorry. She wasn't his Isabella, in the same way that this man here was not the man she had married. Not anymore, at least. Humphrey couldn't speak. Isabella said that she had hated him for so long. Then she began to hear stories of a different Humphrey Kiniston, a man who didn't squeeze the poor but helped them. A man who lived in a cave and defended the weak. Someone who would go help out an ailing widow when no one else dared, even if it would cost him his life. So she had to see. She had to know if he had truly changed. She didn't believe it possible until one day she saw her own reflection, how much she had grown since the day he left. So she sought him out and she could see now he had changed. He wasn't the man he had been. He wasn't the man she had married. He was better. She took Humphrey into her arms, him blubbering out his pleas for forgiveness. She granted it. 
Humphrey died a few days later in his cave. Isabella was by his side until the end. You can go to what was allegedly Humphrey's cave in Stropshire. The real Humphrey was a highwayman, and the legends surrounding him simplifies many things about his life, as legends often do. The real one, the real Humphrey, was the son of a noble, but he was married twice, fathering up to eight children. He apparently lived in the cave for 27 years, stealing from the rich and giving to the poor, though his initial flight from Middle Castle might have been for murder instead of debts. Some historians have him receiving a pardon from Henry VIII for sending people to fight in France. Most legends have him dying in his cave with Isabella, who's his only wife in the legend, by his side. I definitely prefer the personal growth and reconciliation of the legend. Next week, it's Japanese folklore. Then we are finally getting back into our Greek myth series after missing it this month. The creature this week is the Dobarchu from Ireland. The name is apparently Gaelic for Waterhound. And if you've ever thought otters were cute, well, that's just what they want you to think. They're really stone-cold killers just waiting for their chance to attack. Mentioned as early as 1684 in a book of Irish stories, the Waterhound has also been called the Irish Crocodile, described as being about the size of a greyhound with slimy, dark fur. In my research for this, I found that there have actually been multiple river otter attacks this year in 2023 in North America. I did not know otters could be aggressive. I linked the article in the show notes. But apparently this summer wasn't the only time because the most prominent waterhound attack was on September 27, 1722 on a woman named Grace. She was the victim of a waterhound according to her grave, which has an otter being stabbed on it. Yes, apparently she was by the water. Never a good idea, going near the water, in addition to being wet and uncomfortable, there are countless creatures actively trying to murder you. Like, once again, Grace, whose husband found the waterhound sitting atop her bloody clothes. He was apparently a stab-first, questions-later kind of guy, because he immediately set upon the possible mythological creature, who was maybe just an otter minding his own business. Another one emerged from the lake, and the husband and his friend took off before realizing, hey, these are just otters. They turned their horses around and skewered the creature. Justice was served for grace. Maybe. I mean, this is not a true crime podcast, but feels like they could have investigated that a little more than just taking the knife-wielding, hopefully just, otter-slaying husband at his word. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free. And the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>